0: So I have a milk frother now. I love them. My friend got it for me, and it is... Like the little handheld bzzz, bzz uh, No, I've always had one of those, and those are lame. Okay. I have the plug-in, <gasps> heats up your milk, froths it for you, or we'll do cold foam. It's the mm. best, and now I always have a fun little drink.
1: <laughs> what is your go-to fun little drink of choice right now?
0: Okay, so we know we do a matcha, of course, but... Of course. I like to take the Bigelow vanilla caramel tea. You got me
1: hooked on those. I know, it's so good. It's dessert. I love to have it at night as kind of a like sweet thing. There was a semester in college, I'll never forget this, I had a particular night class and my routine was in my apartment, make that tea mm-hmm. and bring it to night class. And so now that tea tastes to me when I drink it.
0: Like an expensive education
1: more than that. (laughs) When I first had it, it was when I went in your parents' basement and you and I were playing James Bond on the N sixty four together. We were in college at this point, but that was what we did and I tried it and I was like, this is the best day I've ever had. I love this. So then when I went back for that semester, I bought it and now it tastes to me like both playing James Bond on the N (laughs) sixty four with you, Goldeneye. (laughs) <laughs> and a very expensive education in a major that I did switch out of. It's so funny playing old games now. Also, I have a case of that tea
0: in in a box under my bed. I have so many because oh, my aunt that. knew that I liked it and I couldn't find it one year mm-hmm. recently. And so for Christmas, you're like, what do you want? I was like, oh, I'd like this tea. Mm-hmm. And my aunt thought she was getting me six boxes she was ordering it online turns out she was getting six cases of six boxes oh my god (laughs) so i never don't have this tea i've had this case of cases for over Mm -hmm. two years now and i i give it this tea to people all the time it's like this bag of holding of tea
1: yeah well it's good tea
0: yeah okay so i like to take uh, a fancy little fake milk like i think silk makes a non-dairy one that's like. Oatmeal cookie flavored. And if you froth it, then you got a little, you know, it's a little latte dessert Mm -hmm. situation.
1: Ooh, yum. Okay. (laughs) Uh, I want to try that.
0: Hi, I'm Rowan Hall. I'm a little latte dessert situation. (laughs)
1: Ooh. (laughs) Hi, I'm Tracy Harrison. I'm a lavender oat milk latte.
0: And this is Willing and Fable, your local coffee shop that brings you original retellings (laughs) and in-depth research on the history, mystery, and mythology that makes the
1: world so fascinating. (laughs) Each week, we enjoy a beverage. And we research a topic from history, mystery, or mythology, and then we write an original story to go along with that topic. So if you would like to support this podcast, interact with us online on TikTok, Instagram, Twitter. We're all over the place. We love to hear from you guys, and we love when you send us your thoughts on episodes or suggestions for other episodes. We're on all social media at Willing and Fable.
0: Or you can become a patron at patreon.com. We... So appreciate our wonderful community that keeps the lights on on this podcast, the mics running, and maybe gets us a little latte. (laughs) We love a little latte. That's not true. We don't spend (laughs) any podcast money on little lattes.
1: (laughs) I don't spend podcast money on it, but I do spend my own money on it because some days, you know, I want a latte at home. I have an espresso maker. It's not a very fancy one, but I do have one. But there are some days where you want the bougie feeling. Mm -hmm of a coffee cup that you got at a cafe in your hand.
0: Yeah, but here's the thing, Tracy. It's that coffee cup that is causing you to not have
1: generational wealth. Right. I'll never be able to afford anything, you know? If I just didn't buy coffee, I could have everything. In fact,
0: because of your coffee purchases, your entire generation actually is is going to have no wealth and not be able to buy houses or do anything. It's it's really the the laziness, the the slacking behavior of purchasing coffee at your local coffee store and stimulating the economy.
1: <laughs> the other the other tragic part of this is I do unironically like an avocado toast a brunch. So I'm really never getting anywhere in life.
0: You know, I actually recently did make the choice. I mm-hmm. sat down with myself and I said, "You know what, Rowan, do you want a house? Do you want to retire? Or do you want avocado toast?" And I said, Ah, I'm frivolous and foolish, let's do the avocado toast. (laughs) Absolutely. It's
1: that $6 purchase that's going to keep me (laughs) from my dreams. You could save dozens of dollars a year by not getting it. (laughs) Some denomination
0: of six. What, like $36 a year? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. We are losing it. Can you tell Tracy and I have been talking about politics recently?
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah. No, we are. I would say we're at our wit's end, but wit's end is a nice spot in the distance behind us.
0: Here's the thing. My wit extends pretty far. It's my patience that's lacking. Ooh, interesting. Anyway, tell us (laughs) what you have to present to us today.
1: This week, I am really excited about this topic. Uh, this is something that Ron and I had talked about covering. And finally, season four, we're getting to cover Radcliffe Hall. I almost went, it's not season four, Tracy. What are you talking
0: <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, Radcliffe Hall's been on our list for a minute. Mm-hmm. And you very quickly were enthusiastic about it and then going to let me do it instead. And it's like, yeah. no, Trace,
1: take it away. Go. We did have it slotted under you for a while. And then uh, somehow it, it swung back around to me. And I'm very excited. Yeah, because um,
0: you looked at me like a child looks at <laughs> Santa
1: Claus. I, she's really interesting. I'm excited. This is, I, I actually. It, OK. Rowan doesn't know much about what I wrote for this episode, but she does know that I've been very giddy about it. So
0: I also know. This is a woman from history, and mm-hmm. so I am going to hedge my bets uh-huh. and say that you uh-huh. might be writing
1: in first person this week. Oh, I'm so okay. Here's the thing: <laughs> I sat down and said, "I am the one thing I'm not doing is writing in first person." I was like, "The one thing I'm not doing is I'm writing and not writing in first person, and I'm not writing a poem. those are the two <laughs> things that are off the table." So let's write a story. And I had some ideas in mind. I actually had this idea of a story of someone who like was constantly trying to publish their own outlandish or queer or illegal novel and kept getting just one step behind Radcliffe Hall. Like every time they walked in to go publish their novel, Radcliffe oh, Hall was walking that's
0: out. Oh, so funny.
1: That was my initial idea. And then you'll see there's this painting. There's a photo of Radcliffe Hall and her partner at the time. And there's another painting in the background of Radcliffe Hall's ex-lover. And this, this, this photo that they took is beautiful and haunting. And so I just started writing this idea of that, of the idea of these these partners with the ghost of someone else behind them and, and the feelings <sighs> on that. And so I wrote in first person with the poem in it.
0: Yeah, you will recall that the episode before this was queer and the episode before that was you and women in history and all yeah. of the stories were first person. Yeah. So this is a surprise to no one and... <laughs>
1: I'm excited. (laughs) The only person it's a surprise to is me because I put those two things as I will not do them and then um, I did them. But for this episode, we're going to start off with a quote from the book, The Well of Loneliness, which was written by Radcliffe Hall. You're neither unnatural, nor abominable, nor mad. You're as much a part of what people call nature as anyone else. Only you're unexplained as yet. You've not got your niche in creation. But someday that will come, and meanwhile, don't shrink from yourself, but face yourself calmly and bravely. Have courage. Do the best you can with your burden, but above all, be honorable. Cling to your honor for the sake of those who share the same burden. For their sake, show the world that people like you and they can be quite as selfless and fine as the rest of mankind. Let your life go to prove this. It would be a really great life work. Ooh, Yeah.
0: That's such a good quote because it it fundamentally is like it is enough to just be a good human living the best life you can live.
1: Yes. The best revenge is living a good life and the best way to show people that you're not something they need to hate or fear is to be something they respect it this sets the scene for the person we're about to spend the next however long talking about (laughs) so john radcliffe hall was given the name marguerite antonia radcliffe hall upon her birth in august of 1880 hall often chose to go by the name john rather than marguerite so i will be using the name john Radcliffe, or simply Hall, as I describe her in today's story and research.
0: We'll see if I respond when you say Hall. That would be embarrassing.
1: (laughs) I know. I thought about that when I was writing the research for this and I actually texted you and said, will it be too confusing if I say Hall? And you're like, oh, my God, I love it. Go for it. No, are you kidding Uh, me? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. That was your response. So uh, someday you can cover a story of someone named Harrison and then I can just constantly be confused. Oh, it's on. (laughs) I love it. Before we get into her life story, I want to see something about gender and self-identity, which is namely this. Gender is complicated. There's an amazing article titled A Biography on Pink Paper from the University of Texas at Austin that discusses Radcliffe Hall's gender identity. They say, quote, As Hall never publicly identified as transgender nor used pronouns other than she, her, this teaching guide will adhere to those structures while naming and recognizing that it is an imperfect and potentially harmful solution, end quote.
0: So to be fair, you and I talked about this off podcast. Yes. Because we were both enthusiastic about it. Yes, we were both very passionate about this. And, you know, that is the thing that people love to get up in arms about and kind of really dig into with Radcliffe Hall. And unfortunately, at the end of the day... You cannot just decide that someone would have used different pronouns than they did Mm -hmm. in record. You cannot decide that someone is or is not transgender when you don't have the information to support it. And the reality is that Radcliffe Hall lived at a time in history, could even be living today and have this happen, that it would not necessarily be safe or desirable to name yourself anything else, to make a lot of decisions that folks are trying to make safe today, but you just got to do what they did themselves, unfortunately, or maybe
1: fortunately. Yes, we we don't know because the terms that we're talking about, queer, trans mask, transgender, non-binary, those are modern concepts. And so to take those and put them onto someone who didn't have that as an option makes it really complicated to talk about them. And you're making choices for that person. And at the end of the day, I would say that
0: someone from history or even an icon from today someone does not have to have the exact labels that you have share the exact experience that you share for you to consider them someone worthy of emulating Mm -hmm. or learning about and i feel very lucky that john is part of the queer community pronouns be damned
1: yes uh yes absolutely To quote the paper that I mentioned earlier once again, while queer history is long and nuanced, much of what is officially documented about queer people appears relatively recently. Laws, cultural conventions, and personal beliefs leave queer historians with a complicated task when it comes to sorting through intricate, delicate, and deeply personal information in the lives of long-dead people. This is certainly not easy work. Many of the decisions archivists, educators, biographers, and scholars make are difficult, thorny, and open to criticism. Each choice made means the rejection of another choice. In many cases, these choices are political. For example, many words and terms we use to describe queer relationships and a range of genders are also relatively recent. While queer and transgender people, to use contemporary parlance, have always existed, the vocabulary modern audiences might use to describe them have not how does one refer to a long-dead queer person who self-described as a, quote, woman trapped in a man's body? While it is possible that such a person might identify as a transgender person in the present, it is also possible they would not. The decision to label them as transgender is innately difficult, with different transgender historians advocating for and against the appropriateness of such a choice. End quote.
0: It's the classic phrase, no one is a monolith. yes. You can't make everyone happy and the decisions that really make some folks feel good and supported might bum other folks out. I will say it's pretty cool to have a person who goes by John use she, Mm -hmm. her. It feels very modern.
1: It does feel very modern. And that was the decision I came to. I, in this episode, will be using she, her pronouns while addressing Hall by the name she preferred to use, which was John Radcliffe Hall. And I love that for her. Oh, absolutely. It feels powerful for the time and it feels powerful for now.
0: It reminds me also of the discussion around disability language when we talked about sideshow freaks and how we, A, had to use the term freaks when talking about the historical context that these people lived in. But also Mm -hmm. there's a whole discussion about a disabled person versus... Someone who is disabled. And I, yes. I think at the end of the day, when everybody is operating in a place of, of good faith and appreciation and enthusiasm, it's so much more valuable than the argument among well-intended folks.
1: Yes. Uh, The word well-intended there is so important. Oh, it's doing a lot of heavy lifting. (laughs) Exactly. But it's exactly what you said. If I go to someone and I say, this is a person with blindness versus a blind person. And let's say I say, this is a a person with blindness. And they say, I I would rather not have person first language. It makes it feel like I'm a caveat of something, which Mm -hmm. I've heard argued. Mm -hmm. Then that person will just say, thank you for telling me. Or I'm so sorry to have made you feel that way i know differently now as opposed to someone who gets defensive but the person who gets defensive defensive probably isn't thinking should i say person first language or (laughs) absolutely not no they're the same people who are mad about m&ms so is that the sexy m&m thing yes yes i didn't know what
0: anybody meant about that for a second i just kept hearing the sexy (laughs) m&m
1: oh my god with no context that's so funny
0: I was like, which M&M is sexy? Because I like pretzel M&M's, but like if you think caramel M&M's are the sexy ones.
1: <laughs> I mean, the answer is crunch, so. I mean, I don't
0: eat M&M's anymore.
1: <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Oh, yeah, you can't. Um, yeah, the they, green M&M had her heels shortened. She might even be wearing sneakers. I'm not sure. And specifically Tucker Carlson's like, I won't fuck that M&M. So now everything's bad. And then they said the the one M&M, I don't even remember what color, purple maybe, is fat, is promoting obesity because she's heavy. What? She's a peanut M&M.
0: The peanut M&Ms are chunky. That's what makes them so cute. They have
1: a peanut in them. <laughs> <laughs> they have little M&M bellies. I love that. Yes. So be glad you were not uh, as chronically online as I am at the time that was happening because... I never want to hear anyone talk about the sexy Eminem again. But instead, we're going to talk about John Radcliffe Hall. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> to start us out, I have one of my favorite pictures of her um, here oh. for you to describe Rowan.
0: Oh, my God. I pulled this for you.
1: I thought you'd like it as much as I do. She
0: looks so hot.
1: Okay. She's so cool.
0: Look at this outfit. You would wear this outfit. Oh, I'd wear the hell out of that outfit. Um, <laughs> so it's a full profile. So you get this exact, like, perfect line of mm-hmm. half of her face. And John has a really strong nose. We love it. It's a good nose. Sharp jawline. Um, and really high collar with, I think, like, an ascot-style tie. There's a little bit of ruffle down the chest and a proper, like, black classic mm-hmm. suit jacket, hands folded in front of them, leaning their arm over the chair. So you got kind of that, that uh, confident wide set yeah. to the shoulders. And the hat, it's... It's not a fedora. It's flat on the top with a round,
1: flat brim. I wish I could describe it other than you've seen Christian girl, autumn girls wear this hat in modern day, but they wear it in like a tan suede. Oh,
0: yeah. Okay, that's exactly the hat. But instead of pulled back to show your hair, it's kind of forward on, on John's head. And she's also wearing these amazing round earrings they look like they could be like a metal a gold or a silver but they are the kind of earrings that you would find in like your grandma's drawer but Mm -hmm. only one of
1: them yes it's and maybe it's clip-on maybe it's going through your ear you don't know
0: the mask femme happening in this yeah, photo. The,
1: the sideburn little curl is oh, one of my I, favorite pieces. I
0: didn't even mention the curl. So she has her hair styled exactly as Tracy described, coming down in like the cute little, you see it a lot in 1920s pictures, like mm-hmm. flapper girl style, that cute little curl going I think forward. think this photo
1: is from around the 1910s, 1920s. Ugh, ugh, go off.
0: Yes. And you got to know the pants and the shoes with this outfit are equally as good.
1: You know they're amazing.
0: I will say Not to totally derail us, I had uh, a tux tailored for me the last time I went to the Cannes Film Festival, like a full men's tux. And I did not have it tailored in a feminine way. I just got a tux in my size. Mm -hmm. And it was raining so much when I was there. So I just completely abandoned all of my dresses and heels and just wore, like, the tux with a scarf most of the time. People treated me so
1: differently. How so? People took me much more seriously. Oh, okay. Probably not. But did you ever get a chance to do the cool, you look cold, let me put my jacket over you thing?
0: <laughs> no, I didn't. I'm chronically cold. so yeah, yeah, that's why
1: I said probably not. And if you were pairing it with like, I don't know what kind of shirt you're wearing, if your scarf was your shirt... It, there's only so many times it's feasible to do that but I will I, do that move
0: but I was just like wearing a men's button down and I just fully did the thing oh I love that it was really oh, I comfy I, I understand now mm-hmm. why men have some more audacity when they're dressed up because their clothes aren't fussy
1: yeah they're comfortable
0: and not every dress up garment for a femme person is fussy but
1: I could have sprinted down the beach yeah. in my flat shoes ugh <laughs> Oh, my God. Amazing. Although, I'll take any excuse to wear a heel, but that's because I'm (laughs) (laughs) 5'1". All right. So, Hall's parents were, and get ready for this name, Radcliffe, a.k.a. Rat, Radcliffe Hall. His name was Radcliffe Radcliffe Hall, nicknamed Rat, and Mary Jane Sager. (laughs) No. Yeah. Radcliffe, Radcliffe Hall? Yeah. Nicknamed Rat. Why would you choose Rat when you could be Radcliffe, Radcliffe? (laughs) I don't know what led to the nickname Rat, but it's not the worst nickname for this man. He's not the best. Oh, I was going to say Ratty Daddy, but not for him. Ratty (laughs) Daddy. Um, No, I mean, he is Ratty Daddy. And unfortunately, he isn't the worst father figure that she had.
0: Oh, okay. He was a
1: complicated man, which, you know. Is a nice way to say bad dad, but he was wealthy and educated and he studied at Eton and Oxford, but he was a known philanderer and he abandoned his wife and Radcliffe Hall, his daughter, only two years after Hall was born. He left her a large inheritance to live by despite his absence from her life, and her mother is described as a, quote, unstable American widow who married a man named Albert Visetti shortly after... Radcliffe, Radcliffe, Rat Hall
0: left the family. Every time I hear Radcliffe Hall, I always think it's like a place, even though I know better.
1: I know. I agree. But also, unstable American widow. She, she's bad. She's bad news. So Radcliffe Hall, John Radcliffe Hall, did not get along with her stepfather and very rarely got along with her mother, her mother often made it very clear that she did not want her daughter and that her daughter was the result of a failed attempt to end her pregnancy. (gasps) She frequently stole the money that Radcliffe Hall's mother left as the inheritance from her daughter. And eventually, John grew up and realized that she could just leave and take the money and live her life however she wanted to and in fact it was enough money that she could live off of it without working which meant she didn't have to fear the repercussions of society anymore hell yeah mhm
0: it's amazing how money will help so many problems
1: i know it really
0: will okay so fundamentally we know clothing has no gender however socially clothing is gendered mm-hmm. and that is useful for some people and not for others moving mm-hmm. on At the time, clothing so gendered. Was Radcliffe Hall
1: wearing boys' clothes as a child? I don't think so. I didn't there's not a lot of information about her childhood, but Mm. it's constantly described as when she got her inheritance and left, she began to live as she pleased, and she started really dressing in typical men's fashion, going to tailors, wearing trousers, monocles, hats. (sighs) Really leaned into I wear men's clothing. It actually a perfect example of gender-affirming with clothing. It is. And Hall described herself as a congenital invert, which is a term taken from the writings of Havelock Ellis and other turn-of-the-century sexologists. This is a theory that was very popular in the late 19th and early 20th century, and the idea of sexual inversion was believed to be an inborn reversal of gender traits, Male inverts were, to a greater or lesser degree, inclined to traditionally female pursuits and dress and vice versa. The sexologist Richard von Kraft Ebbing described female sexual inversion as the, quote, masculine soul heaving in the female bosom, end quote. Wow, I never heard of that term before. I hadn't either. It's a really outdated term. uh, And it was very popular, like I said, in the end of the 19th, early 20th century. So we're talking end of the 1800s into the early to mid 1900s, which makes sense. That's exactly the time that Radcliffe Hall was coming up. She was born in the 1880s, lived through the turn of the century into the 40s. So she identified herself as a sexual invert, which meant she felt that though she was a woman, she had a more or less male soul inside of her. And the idea is the inverse is true for men as well.
0: It's just interesting. You know, you can never know if she liked that term or not, but she used it and hearing the way that language evolves is just
1: fascinating. It is. And I think she was, if not fond of the term, at least grateful to have something to identify by uh, because this theory was initially just something you saw in medical texts. Mm. But... She brought it to attention in her 1928 novel, The Well of Loneliness, which was written in part to popularize that very view and the sexologist terms. Oh, cool. We'll get to that in a little bit. Don't you worry. We've got more coming. But now we're in 1907 when Hall was 27 years old. This is when she met Mabel Batten at a spa in Germany. Hmm. Yeah, right? Don't you want to be in a German spa and meet like the love of your life? Batten was nicknamed Lady. Interestingly, spelled very strangely, it's spelled L-A-D-Y-E. Oh. Just so you can get the full picture. Yeah. Oh, okay. No idea where the nickname came from, but her nickname was Lady, and she was a 51-year-old singer who was married with an adult daughter at the time that they met. I have a painting here for you of Mabel Batten that was painted by John Singer Sargent in 1897, 10 years before Hall and Batten met.
0: I really wish. Is this is this all of it, or is this a crop? I believe this is all of it. You'll see this painting come up again later, because I would love to know what's happening off screen of this painting. Mm. Because our
1: girl's head is thrown back in what I would describe as ecstasy. Yeah. So from what I understand, this was a painting done by the artist while watching her sing.
0: Mm, okay. Okay. So she's just having a good time singing.
1: If you didn't know she was singing, moaning would be the... the, That is a very good point. I came into this already knowing what the painting was, so I never got a chance to really look at it as just a fresh-eyed person with no background, so...
0: She's wearing, so it, this painting's all done in kind of golden browns, mm-hmm. and she has classic Gibson girl hair, it looks like. She's also got some dangling earrings on. She's throwing back her head. Unfortunately, it's that up-the-nose angle that is is no one's friend. Rude. She's got that, Tracy, probably you'll be maybe better at describing this than me, but it looks like it's either part of her neckline or her necklace is kind of just going on either side of her breasts and looping around so it looks like this sparkling trim and she has this probably white maybe champagne colored dress it is so gibson girl yes it It, is with the nipped in waist and Mm -hmm. the flat but still lightly sweetheart neckline the wide shoulders and what i can only imagine is What would be considered voluminous cloth to us, but a
1: fairly straight skirt. Yes, you've described it perfectly. That's absolutely what this looks like, the time period, the style. And I just think it's so cool that you can look at this painting and know roughly the decade it's from just based on the fashion.
0: I mean, fashion does that. That's why uh, Leonardo da Vinci, right? Wasn't he the one who was like, don't do any identifiable fashion in your work? Because it dates it. Yes.
1: Which I love when things in the 1800s are very, very stylized because I fell down this rabbit hole and now I drilled into myself. If you show me a dress, I can tell you what decade it's from in the 1800s. Seriously? Because like us... You know how we have the 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, and they're all different? Mm -hmm. They did, too. And it's, you can tell, mostly, Rowan, sleeves. Oh, I believe that. You'd think it's the bustle? And a little bit. There's the first bustle and the the second bustle period. But we'll do an episode on this sometime. Or maybe I'll do a YouTube video because you can't really talk about fashion in podcasts.
0: (laughs) Isn't there, like, the bustle? And then there's, like, the bustle.
1: Oh, yeah. Oh, the bustle gets bigger and smaller in different periods, and then there's, like, a a period where the bustle comes back in the 1880s for, like, a quick revival, and then it goes away. But Radcliffe Hall didn't want to wear any of that. No. None of it. None of it. She let her lovers do that. Speaking of her lovers, after Batten's husband died, she and Hall moved in together, and Hall was introduced to Batten's circle of artistic and intellectual female friends, many of whom identified as lesbians. It was Mabel Batten who first called Hall John after remarking that she looked like one of Hall's male ancestors. And Hall liked this name so much that she chose to go by John for the rest of her life. That's so cute. Isn't that so cute? That's like if you went by Captain because you just were so charmed by being called Captain. For my whole life. (laughs) For your whole life. No, we'll stick with Rowan, I think. Thank you. (laughs) But it was also Batten who encouraged John to begin publishing her poetry. Their relationship, however, would not last, as six years after they met, John fell in love with Batten's cousin, Una Trowbridge, in 1915. Ooh, that's ice cold. I know. Trowbridge was seven years Hall's junior, having been born in 1887. She was a sculptor and the wife of Vice Admiral Ernest Trowbridge, with whom she shared a daughter. Hall and Trowbridge would become, and remain, lovers throughout the rest of their lives. Oh, so is this an illicit affair? For a little bit. Um, definitely awkwardness ensued because... the
0: aqua the man, and it's they ride off into the sunset.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I don't super know what happened to Trowbridge's husband, but it was universally known. She was with John Radcliffe Hall. Oh. Like, they were partners. Um, the love affair caused some tension between the three women, but Mabel Batten died of a stroke only a year after Hall and Trowbridge became officially lovers. Oh. Yeah. So she was with Hall for six years, and then only about a year later, she passed away.
0: That's so sad, because even if you aren't
1: super close, you don't want your ex dying of a stroke. No, and this really devastated John. Um, John actually paid to have... Mabel Batten's body embalmed and adorned with a silver crucifix, blessed by the Pope himself. I'm sorry, that's an option? It is if you're John Ratcliffe Hall. You just buy it at the mall? Like, how do you... Hall was surprisingly religious, hmm. was a devout Catholic, and according to Terry Philpot, all three women were, quote, Undeterred by the church's admonitions of same-sex relationships, and Hall's Catholicism sat beside a lifelong attachment to spiritualism and reincarnation. Oh, yes. This is a woman who recognized, I think, pretty early on in her life the concept of and and embraced it. Because she, she was masculine and feminine and Catholic and spiritual and believed in reincarnation, loved... Mabel and Una. Yeah, I mean, I think that's the
0: exact right way to say it. She said, and. Por no said, yes, those. and.
1: Both. Both is good. <laughs> yes. In 1917, a year after Batten's death, Hall and Una Trowbridge began living together. And we even know that they lived at 37 Holland Street in Kensington, London from 1924 to 1929. But the two of them lived together until Hall died in 1943. That's so lovely. So they were dedicated to each other. Let's talk about John Radcliffe Hall's career. Okay. She published five books of poetry between 1906 and 1915. And in 1924, she published her first novel, The Unlit Lamp. This story follows a young girl named Joan Ogden who dreams of setting up a flat in London with her friend Elizabeth and becoming a doctor. However, she feels trapped by her manipulative mother's emotional dependence on her. And this book ultimately did not do well upon its release due to its, quote, length and grimness. <laughs> 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 I love her. <laughs> I really fell in love with John Radcliffe Hall during this episode. I, she's one of those figures in history, I actually think getting to meet, I might get along with. Like she was far from perfect, but I get her. I would love to put John
0: Radcliffe Hall and Anne Lister in mm. a locked room and watch yes. them eat each other. Cause I don't think either of them would take guff from the other. No. And they both had to deal with, I mean, not in tandem, but British society.
1: Yeah. Yeah, they were about 50 years apart. apart. Um, Anne Lister was fa- made famous. The story of Gentleman Jack, the show, and everything takes place in the 1830s. And mm-hmm. I think she died around 1840. And Hall wasn't born until 1880. Right. So maybe if you really believe in reincarnation, like Hall did, you could even say there's a part of Lister in her. <laughs> the Willing and Fable uh, grudge match. Like, oh, yeah,
0: we have what I don't know. What are they called? Brackets? Is that yeah, what you the do? brackets.
1: <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Instead of March Madness, it's us just doing which historical figures would beat each other up in a fight. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> we all know Ching Shi and Julie Dobney are going to be the final bosses. Yeah. If we're if we're talking historical figures, my money's on them. But there are some historical figures we haven't covered on the show that if we could put on the bracket, I think would be up there. Okay, so we'll get to those. So for John Radcliffe Hall's next novel, she intentionally chose a lighter topic and wrote a social comedy titled The Forge. This is the first book she published under the name M. Radcliffe instead of her full birth name. This book did much better than the first and made it onto the list of John O. London's Weekly, a well-known literary magazine at the time. After this book, she would go on to use only Radcliffe Hall as her pen name.
0: Yeah, interesting that she's publishing under Marguerite or a version
1: of it, Mm -hmm. even when she's going by John. I think it's one thing to go by John with your friends and family, or probably mostly just friends and found family, and another thing to put it out into the world for strangers. Fair.
0: I don't know a ton about her, certainly not compared to you, but if I remember correctly one of the reasons she wanted to make the forge lighter is because it was so difficult to get the first one published and then so difficult to sell because it was so dark. Yeah.
1: <laughs> and I, I love that. Yeah. She's, she's, she's adapting. She's flexing. And then
0: we just don't talk about historical figures having to deal with marketing and money in quite the same way. So it's really fun to get that detail.
1: It is. It's a unique detail and, and not to gloss over it, but the we both know one of the main reasons we don't get to talk about historical figures having to think about marketing and money and this and that is because they were all rich and they didn't have to. And it's cool that we see her grappling with that, even though she also was rich and white and privileged in that sense.
0: Oh, Tracy, just say it again and again and again. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Don't worry. We will. (laughs) We always do. Her book, A Saturday Life, was published in 1925 and then Adam's Breed in 1926, which was a novel about an Italian head waiter who, becoming disgusted with his job and even with food itself, gives away his belongings and lives as a hermit in the forest. Yes. Right? (laughs) Big, big mood for our modern times. I'm just a little guy. He's just a little guy and he's just going to go live in the forest. (laughs) (laughs) This book sold well. It was critically acclaimed and won both the Prick's Femina and the James Tate Black Prize, a feat previously achieved only by E.M. Forrester's A Passage to India. In 1926, she published her first short story dealing with homosexuality. Twelve days later, she began writing her most well-known work, The Well of Loneliness. I have a picture here of the 1951 cover of the book The Well of Loneliness.
0: Oh, wow. It's wild imagining a specifically queer book being published in the 50s. It makes sense. I get it. But, you know, the 50s, you think of like White Picket Fences and Mommy's Little Helper and Mad Men and all of that.
1: Oh, yeah. We'll get to it. This is a reprint from the original. The original was published in 1928. But for reasons we'll get to, this copy is from the 50s for For when people could get their hands on it.
0: Gotcha. Okay. So this book cost 35 cents. Mm -hmm. It says it right on the cover. Yeah. Oh my gosh. (laughs) It's the cover is a painting, and these two women are off to the right. One is in the one closest to us is in profile, not unlike John was in the photograph of her in she's got black hair and looks like a white button down, and then there's a woman standing behind her with kind of red-toned light brown hair and a bob, a blue dress with cap sleeves, looking down favorably, I would say, mm-hmm. at the woman in front of her. Kind of like standing over her, but in a in a good way. And they're both reaching towards the far corner, and then there's just randomly fire
1: behind them. And a picture frame or just a gold line for no reason? I think it's just like, it, it looks like it could be a painting of fire. It looks like it could be a fireplace that they're in front of at a weird angle. It's a very interesting illustration, but you just look at it, and especially the person in the front is so 50s.
0: Right, well, and the person behind her is painted with a contour that is so... 20 teens
1: yeah this is the only one of john's novels to have overt lesbian themes it tells the story of stephen gordon a lesbian woman who like hall identifies as an invert the book though far far from explicit was the subject of an obscenity trial in the uk which resulted in an order for the destruction of all copies of the book oh oh yeah The United States allowed its publication, but only after a very lengthy court battle. While many authors supported the book and came forward in its defense, Virginia Woolf thought the novel was a, quote, pale, tepid, vapid book. (laughs) Harsh critic. However, she was still willing to go and take the stand in its defense, despite her claiming to dread the thought of doing so. Okay, you know what? You don't have to like it. At least you're there, I guess. Both Virginia Woolf and a lot of other authors really felt strongly that this book should not be banned because it was infringing on their ability to write and to say things and to put thoughts out into the world because this was not an explicit book. And we'll get into it, but this came out the same year as Lady Chatterley's Lover. Yeah, but that one's straight, right? Yeah, it also, that one got banned and had a whole thing. But this one, if this story was between a man and a woman, no one would question it. This was a pretty chaste novel, but it was very clearly showing a love story between two women. So in the end, Magistrate Sir Charles Buren ruled that authors could not testify for the book as its literary merit was irrelevant to the trial.
0: Why? It's happening right now in America. Why is the conservative argument always these people are bad and shouldn't exist. And it's like, no, 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 people are going to exist whether or not you are (laughs) narrow-minded.
1: Yes, and there's an argument for projection. There's an argument for being blind or in choosing ignorance. It's cherry-picking items from religion, regardless of the conversation of religion being a part of politics and government. It, it we will get into it later. Its something deeply frustrating and something I have many thoughts on. But for now, Hefziba Anderson writes for the BBC that, quote, "When a book has been banned on grounds of obscenity, a reader may be forgiven for coming to it with certain expectations. In the case of Radcliffe Hall's The Well of Loneliness, those expectations are decidedly misleading. For all the clasping of hands and flushing of cheeks that fills its nearly 500 pages, this is no Lady Chatterley's lover. Both were published in 1928 and subsequently banned, but whereas D.H. Lawrence described his protagonist's trysts in vocabulary that would still necessitate asterisks here, Hall stops at the bedchamber door. Aside from a kiss that is, quote, full on the lips as a lover, end quote, the coyly phrased, that night they were not divided, Ooh. is as racy as the well of loneliness gets. End of quote.
0: course it is. Because even today, people have to get excited being like, I think those two women are a couple on this CW show because of this one detail that is n- basically not there. Because it all has to be hidden
1: and veiled. and st-. Exactly. Exactly. There's the whole conversation around queer baiting and... <sighs> I actually didn't even touch on that for this episode, but... Oh, no, there's so much to unpack there. There's so much to unpack there. Honestly, we could do a whole episode on queer baiting in Hollywood history. But there was just a movie that came out of Lady Chatterley's Lover. Where is my Well of Loneliness movie? I looked it up. I haven't found one. And I want it. <laughs> That's my, my, my shout-out, my call to Hollywood... Hello, Hollywood? We Hello, would like a, Hollywood. Well, of well this movie, thank you. Operator, put me through to Hollywood. I have a great pitch. <laughs> so quoting that BBC article again, quote, the controversy, of course, stemmed not from what was being done so much as who was doing it with whom. If Lady Chatterley caused a scandal by showing lust to be no respecter of class boundaries, Hall's novel was still more shocking because its protagonist, despite being named Stephen Gordon is a woman and her supposedly masculine proclivities extend far beyond her name she weightlifts and refuses to ride side saddle Ooh. she gets her clothes made by a tailor rather than a dressmaker and longs to cut her hair short and from a young age she's prone to unusually intense feelings for other women end quote <sighs> it's interesting that a character like this which was so incredibly revolutionary for its time is just Almost something of a stock character now.
0: Yeah. It, tropes exist for a reason. Yeah. I know that person. I love them. Like, yeah. that person exists. Again, it's not up for debate if they exist. Writing about them, really cool. Like <laughs> Yeah. And it's just it's I don't know. It's the same thing different day. It's us sitting here in 2023 being like they should have done it differently. And then also turning
1: around and going, gosh, I wish we were doing it differently now. Welcome, Rowan. That is the whole thesis of my entire argument for this episode. This whole episode is, dang, they were really hoping the future would be better for them in 1880s and pushing the boundaries for it. And whoops, we're not there yet. It's not that future, even though it feels like it should be.
0: But, but, and I will say this because I think there, some optimism is deserved. Uh, We do have a podcast where we two women are talking about this queer woman and, and, you know, very open context. Yes. Everyone gets to listen and just
1: exist. That is a very good point. I I like Optimist Rowan.
0: (laughs) You know, I, (laughs) I watched a video today about how to dress and put on makeup and like prepare yourself to like get empathy from doctors who otherwise oh, won't believe you. And I then the I sent it to yeah. you and I've yeah. been mad all day. So I'm now I'm really reaching for
1: <laughs> the good things. I got myself into a tizzy researching this episode and I'm ready to have a lot of conversations about uh queer youth and queer experiences in our culture today. But before we get there, mm. let's Continue the life of Radcliffe Hall. In 2019, papers from Hall's archive were revealed, and they showed that thousands of readers had written to Hall to protest the banning of her book. Many wrote sentiments praising her work and thanking her for sharing their story. Readers especially connected with a sort of prayer at the end of the novel, quote, Rise up and defend us. Acknowledge us, O God, before the whole world. Give us also the right to our existence. End quote. For thousands, perhaps even millions of men and women, the well of loneliness became a beacon, a Bible, and a lifeline. Maud Royden, a female preacher, gave passionate support for the book. A sermon on the subject was published in the Guildhall Monthly in April of 1929. It went, quote, I feel bound to say that I find it difficult to understand why an official who permits the publication of books so filthy that it soils the mind to read them, and the production of plays in which everything that is connected with sex is degraded, in which marriage and adultery alike are treated as though they were rather a nasty joke, should have fastened on this particular book as being unfit for us to read. I do not desire that those other books or plays should be suppressed, I have no faith at all in that way of dealing with evil. It is better to concentrate our efforts on trying to be interested in something that is good than to take a shortcut to virtue by repressing what is evil. End quote.
0: The last line of this quote is so good. The Mm -hmm. idea that you should focus on making good rather than just squashing your own definition of evil Yes, that's so
1: useful. Yeah, I love, I had to include this because this is a woman who was a preacher in 1929 saying, that lesbian book's fine. Maybe think about your own life and choices. Yeah, you know, the
0: idea of a Christian? Christian? This woman is a Christian preacher?
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: Wild. Or maybe not wild. I don't know. You just never hear about
1: it. No, it feels wild. I know some preachers today... There was a church near me that ended up splitting because a new preacher came in and was very anti-LGBTQ and it caused a lot of ruckus in the church. People I know in my life attended that church and stood up in defense of the queer community and eventually half the church physically left and moved to another building with that preacher. And the church that the people I know go to found a new preacher, I guess preachers are Catholic term. I clearly don't go to church. They found a new person to lead them. Wow. And oh no, preachers, fine, priest is Catholic. I'm really showing how not religious I was. Aren't you,
0: christened? I was Catholic. Catholic Didn't you marry Jesus when you were twelve or whatever?
1: Yeah, yeah. We haven't talked about this on the podcast. <laughs> I was baptized Catholic. I was raised Catholic until I was 10. I went to Holy Communion. And I just heard this story for the first time, actually, the other day when I was at lunch with my mom. So I do have to share it here because I think you, Rowan, will appreciate this. <laughs> so when my parents moved when I was 10, in Pennsylvania, you can't just go to any Catholic church you want. You have to go to the church whose parish you are in. Are you kidding me? Yeah. 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 You, you have a specific church you go to based on the parish you're in, which in New Jersey, where my parents were from, you could go to any Catholic church you wanted. So Who when decides? we move don't People make these boundaries, I guess, where it's like this. If you live within this zip code area, you go to this church. If you live within this one, you go to this one. Like, it stems back to that old English, like, uh, this is my actual parish because I'm the village priest.
0: Like the sharks versus the jets, but with communion wafers? What?
1: yeah okay yeah so we go to this new this new church or my parents are going to like you have to like sign up and all this stuff and I don't remember the full conversation they were having because my mom I think also couldn't remember the full conversation but basically (laughs) my mom was like oh they called and my dad was signing everything up they're like oh we also need your wife and you know her information and they're like no he was like you don't want to talk to my wife you don't you don't want to – because my mom was in a, in a state at this point because they'd been, like, giving them the runaround. And also she just has, like, a lot of views around, like, women in the church. and I bet. So finally, like, no, please, both of you come in and we'll, you know, we'll get your family signed up. And so they both go in and my mom walks in and she was like, hey, father, I have a question. Um, I have five daughters and um, do you really expect me to raise them with the statement you're not good enough to be – the head of a church or leader of a religious community, because I don't think that's fair. And I'd love for you to explain why. And my dad just looks at him and goes, I told you you didn't want to talk to my wife. What did he say? Oh, he just did some kind of stutter. My parents ended that meeting by not signing up for the church and that I never went to church again. (laughs) (laughs) My dad was like, solidarity. I'm standing by my wife. Yeah, I mean, he's the sixth and only
0: guy in the family.
1: (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Yeah, but I, I, you know, he came from a family. My grandfather was attending church. Uh, he actually attended church until he was 92 years old, uh, and was, you know, the guy giving out holy communion. And then didn't like the treatment that the church was giving the congregants and the beliefs they started having. And at 93, I think it was, left his church and was like, "I'm not putting up with your bullshit anymore." But he said it much nicer because he was Irish Catholic and quiet.
0: That's pretty badass because I know a lot of Irish Catholics and. Most Irish Catholics who are getting near the end of their life kind of dig in a little bit more. Yeah. In preparation
1: for heaven, I imagine. Yeah. So good on him. He was amazing. He believed in his, his own faith enough that he didn't need the church. And this is also the same man who would text me and my sister about Game of Thrones when he was 93 I years old. I love him. He was, y'all. My grandfather was an amazing man, but anyway, I just had to tell you that story of my parents being like, "Hey, father, we have five daughters, and you're going to say they're not good enough because they're women i can't I can't stomach that and uh left the I church. can
0: imagine your mom's exact inflection <laughs>
1: <laughs> yes, it's pretty clear the woman I came from, <laughs> okay, so Radcliffe Hall wrote to Maud Royden the woman we were just talking about who gave the sermon and and explained her motivation for writing the novel. And she said, may I take this opportunity of telling you how much your support of The Well of Loneliness has meant to its author during the past months of government persecution. I wrote the book in order to help a very much misunderstood and therefore unfortunate section of society and to feel that a leader of thought like yourself has extended to me your understanding was and still is a source of strength and encouragement. End quote.
0: These two women, just beautiful writing back and forth.
1: Right? And supporting each other. And and I like this little snippet because it reveals so much about what John was going through at the time because it's you don't get that personal experience of the stress that she must have felt. You can understand it objectively of, okay, she wrote a book and it went up for an obscenity trial within weeks of it being published. But to really dig into... The statement of your support over these few months of government persecution says so much about the way it was clearly weighing on her. People are killed for less. Yes, often and still to this day.
0: I can't imagine how afraid she must have been.
1: But uh, the well of loneliness is not without its critiques either. Anderson writes that, quote, The novel has been slated, too, for its limited depiction of lesbianism as being so determinately butch, it might also seem a form of heterosexuality. And it's been called biphobic for the way it depicts Mary Llewellyn, who has relationships with men as well as with Stephen, and misogynistic for the way in which it denies her any say in her own future. Its descriptions of gay men, meanwhile, read like crass caricature. There's also its racism and classism, which can be shocking to encounter in a text that's gone down in literary history as being so radically progressive, nor is there any getting away from the fact that this is simply not great literature. The book is long-winded and full of stilted dialogue. Change a few pronouns, and in some ways it resembles the pulp romances of its era. As with other banned books, this is a novel whose status is intrinsically linked to its having been censored. End quote. Why is there always racism? <sighs> there is. Uh, again, you want this to be a perfect story. You want this to be the, the fairy tale of she was radical and she had the perfect opinions and perfect views and she wrote this amazing novel. You want someone from today to be transported back then and say all the same things we would say today and then get to praise them because they said it in 1928. But the reality is she was someone who was born in 1880, wrote this book in 1928, and was so confronted on the daily with the idea of her queer experience that it makes sense she just didn't confront racism classism even general misogyny
0: i kind of just assumed there'd be classism because she has enough money to insulate her from a lot of issues Mm -hmm. but boy would it have been nice if it just wasn't racist would have been amazing
1: And I haven't actually read The Well of Loneliness, so I can't speak to what degree there is racism in it. Obviously, no racism is good, but is it a fundamental part of the novel or is it something that you see once in a sentence and cringe at? (sighs) I can't answer that question. I could read the book and give you another answer, but either way, the classism, sexism, racism are all in there. Amongst, there's that and... And it is a radical book about lesbians.
0: It's interesting. The biphobia doesn't surprise me in any way at all and isn't even making the list of things that I'm like particularly irked about just because like, mm. of course, there's biphobia. When is there not? Again, even today. Oh, yeah. You still
1: see it. Oh, yeah. <sighs> so love it or hate it, there is no denying that Radcliffe Hall's The Well of Loneliness was a Deeply personal story that has resonated with thousands of queer men and women in the almost 100 years since it was published. Hall published one novel after The Well of Loneliness titled The Master of the House. At her insistence, The Master of the House was published with no cover blurb, which may have misled some purchasers into thinking it was another novel about inversion. Advanced sales were strong, and the book made number one on the Observer's bestseller list, but it received poor reviews in several key periodicals, and sales soon dropped off. But more importantly, let's talk about why she published the story at all. During the controversy and trial for the Well of Loneliness, an anonymous verse titled The Sink of Solitude had appeared. Although its primary targets were James Douglas, who had called for the Wells' suppression, and the Home Secretary, William Joynson Hicks, who had started legal proceedings. His name is William Joynson Hicks.
0: No one in
1: this story has a
0: particularly quote-unquote normal name.
1: Yeah, yeah. Uh, I just had to call that out. I didn't say Johnson weird. It also mocked hall and her book the well of loneliness and one of the illustrations which depicted hall nailed to a cross so horrified her that she could barely speak of it for years afterwards her sense of guilt at being depicted in a drawing that she saw as blasphemous led her to choose a religious subject for the book the master of the house and that is why it was published Wow. Again, I wanted to call that out because not only was this a difficult time in her life that has been summed down to her book went under a obscenity trial, and she lost." it's so much more complicated than that. She was drawn in something that so deeply affected her she couldn't even speak of it for years. That's so... it's so dark. <laughs> it's bleak and mean. Yes, mean. It's mean and mean-spirited and unnecessarily cruel. And I'm not surprised. No. I'd love to be surprised by people's meanness. Someday. That would be nice. But (laughs) it's not this day. In 1930, Hall received the gold medal for the Eichelberger Humane Award. She was a member of the Pen Club and the Council of Society for Psychical Research and a fellow of the Zoological Society. The
0: Society for Psychical Research. Uh, yes. Always makes
1: appearances at the most buckwild, fun, awesome times. Right? This is what, as soon as I read that, I was like, I know this woman. I am friends with this woman. I love this woman. Just to be clear,
0: I would not be surprised if we find out that The Society for Psychical Research is secretly racist, and that would suck. Yes. All that I know about them, though, is currently, is that they're just a bunch of weird folks who are like, no, magic is science. Because it's at a time where no one could tell the
1: difference. (laughs) Yeah. And she was a part of it. She was really interested in learning and experimenting and trying things in the world. (sighs) Ugh. Miasma,
0: ectoplasm, those words come up a lot in relation.
1: Oh, yeah. You love a miasma theory. (laughs) Moving forward, on holiday around 1934, Trowbridge contracted enteritis, which is inflammation of the small intestine.
0: You beat me to the, I'm sorry, what now? Thank you for knowing, (laughs) I would
1: ask. (laughs) Yeah, anytime. Uh, The important part of the story is that Evguinia soline a russian nurse was hired to take care of her okay and hall and soline no. ended up having an affair no. no yeah trowbridge knew about this affair okay. but quote painfully tolerated it it unsettled her deeply but she remained with hall anyways yeah hall kind of would have these little affairs and trowbridge didn't like it but still stayed with her
0: Wow, Hall would have done so well with polyamory. And infidelity sucks.
1: Yes. If this was a polyamorous open arrangement where everyone had informed consent, no problems. It doesn't sound like that was a situation. Yeah. Okay. So in 1943, Hall was diagnosed with cancer and operations were unsuccessful and she died at the age of 63. Oof. Her body is buried in a vault in the circle of Lebanon on the western side of Highgate Cemetery at the entrance of the chamber of the Batten family, where Mabel is also buried. Oh, yeah. The teaching guide, a biography on pink paper for the University of Texas, writes that, quote, "...her partner, Una Trowbridge, had her own life and narrative." Buried with the words, friend of Radcliffe Hall, on her casket, Trowbridge's life and contributions are worthy of remembrance and study. While Hall's legacy, over which Trowbridge was deeply protective, dominates much of what people know about Trowbridge, she too was her own person with depth, interests, and intellect. Like Hall, Trowbridge was an imperfect person. Both held reactionary political beliefs typical of their class in regards to race, classism, and even gender expectations. Both went even further by expressing support for fascism in the 1930s, supporting the political suppression of anti-fascist people and literature in Mussolini's Italy. Hmm. Both Hall and Trowbridge had difficulties in their relationships, such as Hall's infidelity and Trowbridge's overly controlling attitude towards Hall, end quote.
0: The f- fascism thing doesn't surprise me, again, because, as the paper said, because of the social class that they were in and right. the kinds of people that they would have spent their time with, potentially. Right. It's so funny that in their crypt, it's still they were roommates.
1: It's still they were roommates. I had to include that. I also had to include that I really appreciated that this paper took the time to highlight Trowbridge as her own person Mm, mm -hmm. and really emphasize that she wasn't just a figure in someone else's story. So good. It's so good and, and so important to think about. So This picture that I have here is the picture that inspired my story today. Look at them. Yes. It is a photograph of uh, Radcliffe Hall on the right and Una Trowbridge in the front. And then you'll see the portrait we talked about earlier. There are so many things happening. Yes.
0: Okay. So, my friends the room, we've got... Toward the right, a fireplace with a potted plant in front of it. Above it is clearly a painting that funnily is so dark it looks like a TV. Um, mm-hmm. I thought the same thing. This this photo has such modern vibes, like modern people trying to look old-fashioned mm-hmm. instead of just folks living at that time. So then on the left, Una is sitting on... it. It's not a couch. It's like there's more surface area to kind of lay back. So yeah, it's like a chaise
1: lounge, but like wider.
0: She's got a drop waist, nineteen twenties flapper style mm-hmm. dress that's in like a shiny sateen fabric. No sleeves. She's a bracelet on her upper arm. Mm-hmm. The necklace situation is big and bold. I think it's like a collary type necklace. Yeah. She's got this little like pixie face and her haircut. Mm -hmm. It's one of those super short flapper bobs that curls in right under her cheekbones, and her bangs are going into a point in the middle.
1: Oh yeah, it is the strongest triangle point where the the longest point is right above her nose. She's got this incredible pinched little face. Mm -hmm.
0: I just. I love it. She looks like a flapper. And yes. then John is standing next to the lounge chair, we'll say, mm-hmm. leaning back against the wall, looking for all the world like a Calvin Klein model kind of pose. Mm-hmm. She has her hair slicked back. Um, you know, the great Gatsby hair, like where Leonardo DiCaprio looks like a jerk? And it's like, it's that hair. Uh, And then a tux jacket that has some kind of cool pattern on it. Yeah. A bow tie. Is she holding a cigarette in one hand? Yes. But then she's wearing a skirt on the bottom with the tux jacket that's so perfect. And the skirt goes down to just below the knees. So it's, again, that Mm -hmm. flapper kind of length. But it's Mm -hmm. like a straight cut. It's. It's just a little wider than a pencil skirt. So it's this mix-up of, you'd think like a women's work suit today mm-hmm. and a men's tux. Yes. And and here's the really good detail. In the upper left-hand corner is the painting of the
1: former lover mm-hmm. in ecstasy singing pose. Yes. So in on the left is the painting of Mabel Batten. Behind and sort of looking over Una Trowbridge and John Radcliffe Hall in the front, what? That idea is what inspired me for this story. she's she is so ever present even in death. Uh, wow. ok.
0: you know, i I can't speak to the kind of larger world, but I will say, in my own experience, it is just so inherently heteronormative to have to revile your ex. hmm And I, listen, sometimes exes do horrible things to people. I know.
1: <laughs> yes. But, yes.
0: but you know, sometimes people just break up. hmm And it feels, again, just my own interactions with people, it just feels so straight to then have to, I hate this person. Yes. And so it, it, it's not surprising to me that in a queer relationship,
1: the ex could still... Be a human, right? And don't forget the, that you know, Mabel Batten was uh, a relation of Una Trowbridges, so you know, they probably had some affection for each other, right?
0: It's just there is a version of this story that I would imagine between a woman and a man where they're like, "No, I don't care. If she's my cousin. You mm-hmm. loved her and left her, and you know,
1: whatever." So, Rowan, are you ready for the story I wrote this week? No, I'm so ready. Okay. She hovered over their shoulders like a ghost, or perhaps like the memory of something that's divine only in its absence, beloved because it isn't there and never will be again, beautiful and shiny in the way that only a memory can be. Her portrait was the largest painting in the dimly lit room. The whole room had an air of oppression to it, like each breath was a labor unto itself, and I could feel it snaking into my lungs like smoke from the fireplace. But unlike smoke, there was no flue to close or window to open to let the feelings out. Our host weaved through the small crowd of us with ease, and there was an air of nonchalance. Una wore a small smile plastered to her face whenever she thought someone was looking, which was all the time and she lived her life as though an audience were just around the other side of her. Sometimes I wondered if she performed her little shows even in her sleep. How sad, I thought, to be so in fear of yourself that you lived your life inside of a glass cage. Oh, you let people think they knew you, and sometimes their hand would even gently slip past the glass bars, and they touched the very soul of you, but they never got close enough to grab hold. They never really knew your heart and your soul, and... All they knew was the gentle curve of your smile as they sauntered past. John was so very different in that regard. She wore her heart so boldly on her sleeve it was like she was asking for the world to break it. I understood Una's instinct to protect her with a fierceness that at times bordered on frightening. John was the sort of person you were lucky to meet once in a lifetime she was loud and soft and open and proud and gentle and quiet and so much more all at once she took up all of the space and air in a room and i was certain that even her whispers would sound like a god's booming voice echoing off the mountainside whereas i believed that even when una shouted it would hit the air like a whisper a gentle and relentless force no matter the volume So different were they in that regard, and yet they never seemed to clash. I never saw them step on each other's toes in their intricate dance of life and love. That's not to say their relationship was perfect. The ghost of Mabel hung heavy in every conversation. Her portrait was a constant reminder of what stood between the two women. And when I sat in the parlor and watched them quietly from behind my drink, I could see the sadness in their eyes. Una always looked at John as though it was the last time she would get to see her. She drank in her appearance with the greed of a dying man, all while John looked longingly at the portrait on the wall. Una always seemed afraid that John would leave, and John seemed equally afraid of losing the past for fear of experiencing the present. They hurt each other often, but loved each other too desperately to notice. John sat us all in the living room and read us a poem that night. Her words wrapped themselves around the room. Sometimes I wonder if the stars know love, or if it's only for us gods and men, shining brightly in the skies above, forever waiting to be burned again. And if it's fire that I'm meant to know, at least I see it in your eyes. For as I'm burning far, far down below, I'll be staring upwards at the skies. It is through your love that I awoke and further still became myself, and it is upon that love that I now choke, fearing soundly for myself. My whole world has a single point, a center, like the sun above, a saintly figure to anoint the desperate longing of my love. As she read, her eyes flicked constantly to Una, and the two shared a small smile that comes from simply knowing knowing that despite all of the pain and heartache that you endured, the person you were looking at was simply yours. For good, for bad, for better, for worse, they were the one that you chose. And in the end, I suppose I always envied them for that. In my experience, love and passion were easy to find, but dedication was a rarity. And if nothing else... John Radcliffe Hall and Una Trowbridge were desperately and unyieldingly dedicated to each other.
0: What was it like writing poetry
1: as John
0: Radcliffe Hall?
1: Really interesting, and I'm glad you asked that question because I spent a long time trying to read and research her poetry Mm -hmm. and in the end decided to go with what I wanted to write. Mm. So the poetry I write is not supposed to be a recreation of John's writing style, but it is a recreation of the themes that I found in the quotes and poems that I read. Uh, A lot of themes of love, a lot of themes of fear of what that loving meant, um, talking about you know, if I go to heaven, I think the sweetest sin will be experienced there. Um, the idea that you you think I'll be burning, but I'll be in my own ecstasy. Like all of these concepts, the wanting, the longing, the what is after all of this life. So I put that into kind of just a four stanza, ABAB poem style that was really fun to play around with. So even though it's not her specific style, it is her a love letter to her concepts.
0: You know... It's interesting that you bring up those subjects specifically because, in an inherently Christian society, I think it's really easy for straight people to forget that queer love has this baggage that is existential. Like, mm-hmm. just the simple act of loving someone has this burden. This narrative of eternal damnation. Of villainy. A villainy, exactly. And even if you personally do not subscribe to that, you have to reckon with the fact that you live in a culture where a vast majority, if you're in bad places, unfortunately, mm-hmm. a large number of people believe that you are unworthy of going to heaven. You're worthy of suffering for all eternity, which is inherently you are unworthy even to live.
1: Yes. Yeah. It's it is intentionally or not consciously or not setting the message that there is something fundamentally not just wrong with you, but fundamentally wrong with you to the point that you deserve to suffer.
0: And I think this is in my head because like I mentioned earlier, I found that video talking about what you have to do to get doctors to care about you and think you're a mm-hmm. person. And I've asked a couple of my guy friends and they never thought about what they were to the doctor's office or what they're going to say or how they're going to say it. And I think that that's very similar to the fact that people who are straight never th- have to think about the ripple effects of who they love.
1: Yes. I mean, well said. And also, I intentionally book my doctor's appointments early in the morning and then wear office clothes. The game
0: of you have to look like you take care of yourself, but you look Mm -hmm. sick enough to deserve compassion.
1: Yes. So that's a good transition into my next topic, which is talking about... No, wait, quickly, don't transition yet.
0: Okay. I just want to also say that you're writing about this... This person taking up space and mm -hmm. Mm. that – your narrator, I guess, enjoying it and appreciating it and not taking it as something that's oppressive. It's just so much what I want people in my life to think about each other. Like you appreciate when they are large and and fill a room. And so that hearing the narrator speak that way was so – it was such an act of love to even think about. Radcliffe Hall taking up space.
1: Oh, yes. This story was such a love letter to people in my life. Um, There are so many people in my life who I can think of who I've had the thought of when they enter a room, they take up all the air in the room for the better, Mm. for the betterment of everyone in that room. And there are some people in my life who I look at and think, like, oh, my God, I get to know you? You're such a unique person that I get to know. The
0: I get to know you feeling. That I get to love you feeling. Yes.
1: It, that's what I wanted in the story because that's how I feel it must have been like to see these two women. And then I also really wanted to include that the way that I described Una of so viscerally aware of John and so aware of John's legacy and the way people are perceiving John and the way people are perceiving her through John and the anxieties around that and the way that those anxieties aren't necessarily treated as lovingly.
0: Yeah, and it it is interesting also because Una, at least in the the photograph that we looked at, could be straight passing. Uh, Absolutely. So her experience with her own queerness is just fundamentally different. And the way that affects every facet of their lives and then hearing the narrator love both mm-hmm. ways of kind of tackling it. I I just really appreciated that, especially because you captured kind of the way that two people who are very much in love might orbit each other, like that magnetism. Mm-hmm. Great job. Thank you. Okay, now talk about research. Now that we've appreciated you.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so now we're going to talk about uh, queer youth today and uh, content warnings for mentions of suicide. (laughs) So all of this talk about John Radcliffe Hall, Una Trowbridge, Mabel Batten, all of them and their lives got me thinking to, what is the world we're living in today? What's happening now? Surely the experience of being a queer person must be better. And in some ways, obviously And there are a lot of ways in which it is. But there are also many ways in which it's not. So I started with the Trevor Project. Hmm. And they surveyed nearly 34,000 LGBTQ plus people ages 13 to 24 in 2022. And they found that suicide is the second leading cause of death among young people aged 10 to 24. And LGBTQ plus youth are at a significantly increased risk. And according to their analysis of CDC data, almost half, 48%, of bi young people seriously considered attempting suicide in the past year. Among gay or lesbian youth, 37% seriously considered suicide. And among straight youth, 14% seriously considered suicide. These suicide risk disparities among bi youth also remain constant across gender identity and race and ethnicity. Meanwhile, Black, transgender, and non-binary youth report disproportionate rates of suicide risk with 59% seriously considering suicide and more than one in four, 26% attempting suicide in the past year. Whew, those are
0: harrowing numbers.
1: Yes, they are. It's, it's very scary and there is a mental health crisis going on, not just in our country, but among youths in our country. And then as you see based on this data queer you are particularly vulnerable and and you add in black transgender and non-binary have the highest risk of death by suicide at a absolutely terrifying 59 percent. we've said it on this podcast before it is
0: worth saying again the farther away you get from being a straight white cisgender man Mm mm-hmm the harder your life becomes. So the less straight passing you are, not being white full stop. Yes. And then add in how you might look to the outside world. And Mm -hmm. just every single thing you add, it's not surprising to me that the numbers get worse. I don't have to say this to our audience probably, but all of those kids are someone's, Daughters and sons and children.
1: Mm Mm-hmm. It... mm. Yeah. This year, laws targeting LGBTQ youth have emerged across the country. In March, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis signed what opponents have called the Don't Say Gay Bill. And last month, Alabama state legislator voted to ban gender-affirming medical care for trans youth, and Tennessee passed a bill banning drag performances in public spaces. I'm going to try and keep my calm in this section as much as possible because I, I got so frustrated and upset and angry researching this section. I literally, no joke, gave myself a stomach ache. Or don't keep your calm. Great. I love having that permission too. The bill that passed in Tennessee last week, as of recording this, restricts, quote, adult cabaret performances in public or in the presence of children and bans them from occurring within a thousand feet of schools, public parks or places of worship. This was passed alongside separate legislation that bans transgender minors in Tennessee from receiving gender affirming care like puberty blockers, hormones and surgery. And as of a month ago, at least nine GOP-led state legislatures were pushing similar anti-drag bills.
0: I wish I knew the woman's name, but I'm sure you've seen it. The woman who stands up and I believe she might be in a church or maybe in a political building in her local town. But she absolutely shouts that she'd never been sexually assaulted at a
1: drag show, but she'd been sexually assaulted in a church. Twice. Yes, I have seen that video. And it's I mean, that's so important. This is fully a culture war. Um, It is the same way when we talked about Roe being overturned had nothing to do with the protection of fetuses and unborn children and it was everything to do with controlling women's bodies. This has nothing to do with protecting children. This is all about controlling what they deem as inappropriate lifestyles, inappropriate behavior, whatever you wanna call it, they don't like queer people.
0: Yeah, and they also, uh, the the queer community has a different media flow and exists online loudly and Mm -hmm. tends to be pretty vocal about the way money is flowing in this country. They tend to be a group that is more quick to acknowledge that uh, everyone who's not the 1% is a worker. Mm -hmm. You can call yourself upper middle class if it makes you feel good, but you'd probably vote in your best interest if you knocked it off. Like, Oh, yeah. And again, I can only speak from my own experience, I guess. I don't want to speak for the whole internet or the whole queer community, but it makes sense. That conservative Mm -hmm. politicians who are trying to protect the money want to make queer folks' lives difficult because they are a group of people that are likely to talk about, uh, rally around,
1: uh, really get involved in the fact that um, things aren't working. Yeah. Not to mention... We keep saying, you know, the queer community. It is a group with a strong sense of community. And through that strong sense of community has a lot of beliefs around supporting each other. And were that to get broader and be brought into an economic or financial stance, it is the antithesis to what the 1% wants or what the legislators want because they want to not have a sense of community because that puts money into their pockets and lets them put others down to bring themselves up. Well, if you have
0: a group of people who are used to having a lot of found family, sharing with one another, not inherently hating anyone who's not their spouse, (laughs) Mm -hmm. suddenly you're breaking down the nuclear family and the nuclear family is really important in this country because it means everyone has to buy a lawnmower and Mm -hmm. everyone has to buy the backyard grill and Everyone needs every little thing for themselves. But if you have a community that's better at sharing, suddenly you're only selling one lawnmower to five families. Mm -hmm. And while I would never sit here with my microphone and say that's the only reason, following the money (laughs) is usually the answer
1: Yes, it's usually a pretty clear way to get to people's motivations. And Pod Save America
0: just had this amazing discussion with a transgender kid who had to stand up to a politician and say, what about me? Do you Mm -hmm. want me, a transgender man, in the bathroom with your daughters? Because I bet you don't. And to do that, that kid had to out themselves.
1: Very publicly, (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And there's... Oh, okay. I'm glad you brought up... We'll skip ahead a little bit because I have a whole section on the argument around trans people in bathrooms. Oh, God. According to the Williams Institute, when asked, How worried are you about the effects of the Don't Say Gay bill slash law on your children and family? 88% of LGBTQ plus parents said they were very or somewhat worried about the effects of the bill on their children's and families. This bill would also prevent Florida's primary school students from talking about their LGBTQ family members and history. For example, according to the text of the statute, if a student is asked to draw a picture of their family and a child draws their two dads and shares the drawing with the class, a parent could sue the school if they feel there was an inappropriate discussion of sexual orientation or gender identity. The resulting fear of impending lawsuits could encourage teachers to silence students who have LGBTQ family members and exclude them from exercises like this. Let me make this very clear. Laws have been passed in America that could cause a school to be sued because a child drew a happy and accurate drawing of their parents. This child could be well cared for, loved, clothed, fed, played with, taught by, and raised by queer parents and by simply existing in their child's life. The child could express that in school, and the parents or the school could be sued.
0: Yeah, it's not an ideological debate. As I said,
1: people exist. Yes, and this is happening in America today. And the human rights campaign says that, quote, Beyond fatal violence, the transgender and non-binary community faces higher rates of harassment and physical assault, including transgender and young people, with 43% of transgender youth reporting being bullied in school. Laws targeting transgender people and the political rhetoric surrounding anti-transgender bills sends a message that transgender people are not worthy of equal treatment. Contributing to the dangerous stigma that drives this epidemic of violence. Bottom line when transgender people aren't valued, including by their own lawmakers, their lives are viewed by some as disposable, putting them at risk. End quote. <sighs> but Tracy, I hear, what about transgender people and non binary people using restrooms? Mm. Shouldn't we think about bad actors taking advantage of laws that allow anyone to use whatever restroom they want? People can use whatever restroom
0: they want anyway.
1: Yes. My first response is, who do you think you need to protect these people from? Men. Exactly. Straight cis men. Exactly. Ask yourself, who are you really afraid of? And ask yourself, what do you do when you walk into a restaurant and it has an all-genders restroom? How does that make you feel? All right, my next response comes from the HRC. They say, quote, Transgender people are not new and they have been using facilities as restrooms and locker rooms consistent with their gender identity for decades without issue. Laws in 21 states and more than 170 cities and counties prohibit discrimination on the basis of gender identity in employment, housing, and public accommodations such as restaurants, retail establishments, and hotels. There is no evidence that these laws lead to violence or undermine safety. That is why more than 300 domestic violence and sexual assault prevention organizations support full and equal inclusion of transgender people in facilities consistent with their gender identity. Opponents of LGBTQ plus equality have admitted that their bathroom safety argument was contrived and not a real concern based on habits of actual predators. During the civil rights era, segregationists used stereotypes about black men being sexually predatory in order to oppose integration. These false arguments and stereotypes have simply been recycled to attack another marginalized group, transgender people. End quote. The real tragedy here Mm -hmm. among
0: many i should say yeah yeah is conservative politicians can keep us all from having the time and the energy to tackle all of the other absolutely criminal bullshit they're doing because we're too busy trying to make sure the most vulnerable members of our community aren't Put in physical danger, and that danger is real, which means we can't say, Oh no, I'm not falling for your stupid tricks because I see through them. We have mm-hmm. to say, Oh no, I see through your stupid tricks, and you're putting my friends and family in danger. <laughs> That's exactly it. It's what, what was it in the 80s that the Catholic Church decided it cared about abortion? It wasn't an issue before. It became really yeah. convenient politics right around then, if I'm remembering correctly.
1: Yeah. It, it I mean it's exactly that. It's it is so clearly a, a it's exactly what you said, it's so clearly a tactic that we can see through. We understand why they're doing it, and that still leaves us powerless to fight it. We are still powerless to do anything about it, and it, that makes it extra frustrating because they're willing to step across boundaries that one, I, I think many Democrats aren't willing to do, and two, require real active fighting in order to push back. So Nicole Naria and Fabiola Kineas wrote for Vox that in 2021, Arkansas became the first state to issue a ban on hormone treatment, puberty blockers, or surgery for trans youth, a measure that also barred doctors from referring patients elsewhere for those treatments. <laughs> Mm-hmm. The bill was temporarily blocked in court and an Arkansas federal judge will decide whether to strike it down permanently in what will be the first ruling on the legality of such bans. Other states want to curtail public funding for trans care. Among the most stringent proposals introduced this year is one that has advanced through the Oklahoma Senate, which would prevent healthcare care facilities or individual providers that receive public funds, including those located on public land, from administering gender affirming care. It would also bar insurance companies from covering that care. At least 19 states do not have laws that shield people from discrimination based on gender identity, and some are trying to strengthen religious liberty protections in a way that trans advocates say would allow employers, businesses, and medical providers to discriminate against trans people. It's just heartbreaking to watch this country roll backwards in time for rights, equality, acceptance... Morality. And being so unable to stop it, even though I know I and you and many people are actively fighting in many ways to do so.
0: Hearing all of this and just rolling backwards in time, like rolling back the abortion ban, I think about the fact that when abortion was legalized, it brought the cost down. Right. A lot of from, I think, around Mm -hmm. $500 in the 70s. God, could you imagine to closer to $100? Okay, sure. Abortion is legalized. Still, mostly, even at that cost, only available to affluent people, which means Mm -hmm. white people primarily. Mm -hmm. But at least it's legal. We are seeing this again in that the trans community are often the least wealthy. Yes. In The breakdown, not the least reason being that the amount that you pass very often affects the job
1: that you have access to. Even the pay that you get within that job, the ability to be promoted, the ability to be put in front of clients, the ability to be put in front of customers.
0: So then to know the way economics influence this And then hear a story about John Radcliffe Hall, who was so insulated by Mm -hmm. the money that she had.
1: Right. (sighs) It's a different experience. So lastly, the ACLU has a page on their site focused on the ways that lawmakers in America are targeting LGBTQ plus rights. They have an interactive map of the states that shows you what bills are currently impacting each state and how you can take action. So if anything that we have talked about today has resonated with you, and I really hope that it has... Please click on the link in our show notes or go online yourself and find ways to contact your representatives and stop these bills from being passed. Radcliffe Hall wrote that she hoped one day queer people could live in a world that accepted them and gave them the same love and respect as everyone else. And I'm here on this podcast saying the same thing. I hope that a day comes soon where everyone can be who they are without fear of discrimination. But let me be as clear now as I have been about anything on this show. That day, is not here. And it won't ever come unless we all get up and do something and take action. It's so
0: interesting to sit here in 2023 and -hmm. hear all of this. And by interesting, I, I
1: do mean terrifying, I think. Yeah, interesting parentheses, derogatory.
0: Right. And I think about the fact that until... Very, very recently, kind of in the last couple of years, maybe like pandemic adjacent years, Mm -hmm. I didn't really engage with pride because it wasn't something that I needed because Mm -hmm. I am straight passing. Uh, Mm -hmm. And because I am straight passing, my queerness, my relationship with being bisexual is allowed to be private. It's allowed to not be a conversation piece. I don't right. have to talk about it if I don't want to. And, and personally in myself I think it's one of the least interesting things about me but everyone has their kind of own relationship with any facet of their identity. Right. And in having a podcast and realizing that I think young me would have really appreciated someone just being bisexual in existence mm-hmm. And also more important than that, realizing that other queer people in my life didn't know I was queer and therefore didn't know I was safe. Oh, yeah. Was the really big thing for me where I started saying it. I started making it a conversation piece. I started flagging it. Not for me. It's personally not something I need. But I want other people to know that I will take care of them and I see them and I care about their well-being. And I have had conversations with my friends where we have to make decisions that will keep them safe. And I'm kind of put out in the front because I'm the most straight passing. Right. Because I can do things safely that they cannot do.
1: Right. You you have a lot more privilege in that sense that people look at you with more respect or understanding or le- less hostility at the very least.
0: Right. And if I say nothing, people will believe what they need to believe.
1: Mm-hmm. And that is absolutely a privilege. It's something you and I have talked about so much of really intentionally making the show a safe space for people.
0: Right. And I, I think that was a big part of it. Yeah, absolutely. And so to hear about, A, this historical woman who chose not to pass in a lot of scenarios in her own life, um, Mm -hmm. but then to sit here and talk about the fact that Mm -hmm. vulnerable children Mm -hmm. who cannot pass because they're trans Mm -hmm. or will not pass because they shouldn't have to or are Outing themselves because they want a better country like putting themselves in danger uh, yes danger perpetrated by a bunch of adults who are supposed to care for them not the least reason being that they have a social security number and are going to pay taxes
1: i mean that's the least reason they would care but they yeah, yeah they but should for care them. more <laughs> Exactly. And instead, all they're doing is banning gender affirming care, putting out lies about what that care looks like. I mean, perpetuating this stereotype that people are mutilating children because children think one day they want to be something when it's so not it's so not that. And it's it's so much further from that, the way that we handle gender affirming care in this country from children's through adulthood and I could spend another 4 hours on my soapbox just trying to be one of the hundreds of voices, thousands, however many voices out there just talking about what the truth of this situation is with the understanding that there are people out there who will not listen, who I could look in the eye and give them facts and will write me off and push for hurting others.
0: Yeah, I don't
1: I don't know how you convince
0: people That humans deserve empathy.
1: I have done it with a few people in my life. um, And unfortunately, the answer is twofold. Um, It takes a lot of time. And it takes a lot of empathy. The people in my life, I have been able to sway their opinions on these subjects. I've done through the genuine understanding and belief that everyone wants to be, I think, as much as possible, a good person. And... When I have these conversations, I don't approach it with me trying to preach to them the same way them trying to preach to me won't sway me at all. I approach it with, I'm so interested in your viewpoint and your understanding of the world. So please walk me through how you got to your conclusions because I want to know. And then along the way, we'll point out, oh, interesting that you approach things this way because I approached it this way. And these are my fundamental beliefs, where it sounds like your fundamental beliefs are related to these things. And it takes months and in some cases years and it's it takes work and you can't shout someone into believing something
0: yeah one of my favorite things that i learned recently is there's a uh there was a big push to make propaganda films to raise money for the war effort uh in mm-hmm. world war one and world war two and um <laughs> When Reagan was an actor, Mm -hmm. there was a film that was made with men who would be immediately on the front lines as soon as the cameras were done rolling, where they all played women in the film. And they cross-dressed as women. And this was made to raise money for our armed forces. Just a bunch of guys dressing up like women with our favorite boy, Ronald Reagan, as the star I have not seen this. Oh, it's so good. Uh, And it's so funny because if you took that and showed that to, you know, the exact conservative we're all imagining. Mm -hmm. Who thinks trans people don't deserve to live and who loves America, whatever their version of it is, Mm -hmm. at the expense of Americans.
1: (laughs) Yeah, that's a good way to put it.
0: It's, it's, imagine, imagine, like, the way that we have shifted from, oh, this is funny and fine and just, it's men in women's dresses to men in women's dresses deserve
1: to die. Like. (laughs) And then there's the conversation to be had around, well, it was okay because it was men in dresses for a joke and they're big, strong army men compared to. Mm -hmm. A man who wants to wear a dress in his day-to-day life, that's not funny. You can tie yourself up
0: in knots to get anywhere.
1: (laughs) Yeah. So.
0: I hope that eventually in the near future, all of my friends and loved ones who are queer have the opportunity to do what I do, which is walk around and decide in any given moment whether being queer is an interesting thing about me to talk Mm -hmm. about, because everyone should get to be loudly who they are and have it not be an issue, or quietly who they are and not be an issue. And we are just rolling everything back. Yes. Maybe we didn't get that far before.
1: It's a mix of both, I think. But as I you know, said earlier, and I still believe, it won't just get better because it'll get better. It's going to get better because people are fighting. So please find ways to contact your local representative. I recommend the link to the ACLU page that uh, you can narrow down by your state and find out specifically how you can help.
0: Yeah. Let's
1: uh... – Let's not leave it only to the kids. Yeah, Gen Z's doing great. I mean, shout out, fighting hard. It's mm, 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 ok. <laughs> the generational
0: thing, the naming of the generations and the like bracketing people out, yeah, by their their generation, I think is absolutely one of the most repugnant traps that we are all falling into. That makes it, it divides people again in the way kind of class does. Like, okay, Mm -hmm. so, you know, we have, do you remember when we were in school and our parents were always like, millennials, millennials are the
1: worst. My father still does it. Yes.
0: I finally had to say to my parents, you know, I'm a millennial. And they went, well, no, 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 not you. And I went, no, no, I am a millennial. And if you don't like this generation, we should sit down and talk about the fact that you all raised us. And during the course of your tenure raising us, politicians, economists actively chose to remove wealth from the younger generation and Mm -hmm. put it in the hands of the older generation. That wasn't an accident. That happened on purpose. And when we have this generational divide where boomers are saying, ugh, millennials, we have parents choosing to disparage and distance themselves from their children. That means those two groups of people are not going to collaborate, done. Now on the internet, we have this really, really charming narrative about like, ugh, the millennials and the Gen Zs, they're so different, no, no. The millennials, the oldest millennials, are now in their 40s. They've been paying their bills. They have been raising a family. They are as liberal, roughly, as Gen Z. Mm -hmm. And if the older group that now raised some Gen Zs could vote with this group that's now becoming voting age, we'd have people collaborating. Who does it help To have millennials and Gen Zs fighting, to have millennials and boomers fighting, to have Gen X feel absolutely ignored, it helps conservative politicians who need you not to vote and not to listen to your elders.
1: Yes. I love the trend I've seen recently of a real genuine bond I've been seeing between people who are saying, I'm millennial or I'm Gen Z and pointing out the things they love about the other groups because I think it's... You're shaking your head. I, I no, I'm like shaking it my least. head because
0: I love it. I'm just oh yeah, like okay, okay. You know, <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I love it because people saw it. I, there, I, there was a genuine moment in time. I watched I'll let many people on the internet realize they were only hurting themselves by feeding into this joke. And I've been seeing the joke of oh the millennial pause, blah blah blah. blah. Oh, the Gen Z green, whatever, slowly fading, and I and so the same way that I had to have a reckoning with myself and and look at young college women in short dresses in a blizzard walking down the street and go from being like... Icons. What are they Strongest doing? Strongest yeah, among us. To, to, to looking at, and loudly proclaiming... <laughs> those women are stronger than I'll ever be you are goddesses you are icons you're <laughs> amazing like just changing that narrative and I've seen my own family do it now even like my mom when she sees people like that will just be like oh my god they're so strong that's amazing and just slowly slowly the more you vocalize positive things about people in groups and all of that, the, the more you can align yourselves and, and push for that positive mindset change. And so I think we're seeing that slowly, that push away from, no, again, we see what you're doing with this fake millennial Gen Z war mm-hmm. and we're not interested in it.
0: Well, yeah, we can't be fighting about low rise genes when we need to fight for th- women's rights and the mm-hmm. trans ability
1: to live. Like yeah, make fun of my side part, fine, haha, silly, funny. Also, like you're showing up, standing next to me to vote. That's what really matters. Yeah. Look at
0: us. We have we have yeah. soapboxes on soapboxes. <laughs> it's getting precarious up here. Ooh, oh climb down. <laughs> I'm really glad that you covered this episode.
1: Thank you for really digging in, especially at the end. Yeah. Oh, I... uh, Transparency. I texted Rowan very early on in my research and said, like, this is an all me episode. You're not allowed to (laughs) also write a story in this episode. I need the whole time just for me. Um, It was infuriating, but also so incredible to research this. I really dove into it and, and I am very glad we got to cover it. So thank you for giving me the time and space to do a full long episode on radcliffe hall and the queer experience
0: i like imperfect people in history i do too so tracy yes before we do it because this Uh is our first like full proper episode of the season should we explain why we do tell me something good Oh, absolutely. Yeah, take it away. Uh, well, one, because it's just a nice wrap-up for an episode. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> because sometimes the episodes are a little sad. Yeah. Um, but also, the story goes back to when I had a breakup and my dad felt bad for me and wasn't sure what to do because I live across the country. So he sent me an Amazon Echo. And I learned very quickly that you can just say, Echo, tell me something good.
1: Mm-hmm. And she'll
0: just spit out a weird little fact. Yeah. Which is so fun. And I think I laid in bed being sad and just asking her to do that like dozens yeah. of times in a row. Yeah. <laughs> so that's where that comes from. So Tracy, tell me something good. I would
1: love to. My something good is that I was able to do a full, true, go-to-the-spa all day experience. I've never done that in my life. Oh. Never just like had a full day of spa treatments. <gasps> because like that's a big spend, like that's a big commitment to do. But we were celebrating my mom's birthday, and so my mom, uh myself and one of my older sisters months ago planned a trip to a pretty well-known spa that's uh in our general Pennsylvania area. And it was so nice.
0: Are you a better person now? No. Did they massage the meanness out of you?
1: No, I kept waiting for it, but it's there. It's in me. Like a tube of toothpaste. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Just squeeze it out. <laughs> <laughs> but it was so nice. It was just, you know, you sat in your robe all day. They had all these different rooms you could be in. And we did all these different treatments. And because we booked it for my mom's birthday, they kept surprising her with, like, here's a chocolate bar with your name on oh. it. And um, here's a free dessert at dinner. That like, And we weren't saying it at any point that it was her birthday. They just had it written. Every single person who met up with her throughout the day for any treatments wished her happy birthday. Yes. Like this was just amazing. And we're already planning how we can go back for my birthday or do something else. Cause it was just it was just nice to be pampered. And and again, full transparency. This was a day I was texting you about podcast stuff, and you were just like, oh my God, go relax. Don't talk to me. I have it handled. Like <laughs> It was just, you know, Jamie had uh, Malcolm for the day and, and I was able to just truly have this like movie style spa, like you feel like you got the cucumbers on your eyes experience. It was nice. It was it was like a very rare thing for me. And that was fun. I'm so glad you did that. Yeah, it was really, really special. I've just never done anything like that. I don't usually splurge on myself like that.
0: You deserve it. Thank
1: you. <laughs> so now it is your turn, Rowan. Tell me something good. Here's the thing. I also went to the spa.
0: <laughs> Wait, really?
1: Yeah. Oh, nice. I went on Monday. <laughs> it was Sunday. Oh, my God. That's so funny. What did you do? I went for
0: a massage. I like there's this spa that I go to that is open late. And I mm. went after work and no one's around. And they have this yummy lemon vanilla tea there and i have a little knot in my back that i call the black hole uh Mm. turns out uh it's where all my evil is stored i think it's where all my emotions are stored yeah absolutely um which is such a bummer
1: (laughs) (laughs) it's still there um oh yeah it takes more than one treatment
0: but it was nice to have someone
1: poke it (laughs)
0: It felt a little bit like they were – the knot. you see, it's so intense that it feels like when touched, they're touching my soul.
1: Uh Mm Uh-huh. (laughs) Mm-hmm.
0: That's unsettling, but the massage was
1: lovely. I felt that way. There was a couple of things they did in the treatments because it was like a massage, a body treatment, facial, where I was like – they would rub a certain knot out of my back, and I was like, oh, my God, I feel emotions. Like, I genuinely – I had not had that before where you're getting a treatment and all of a sudden you're like, I think I just released some trauma. Like, I feel like I'm going to cry.
0: Oh, there's that time I was supposed to cry in 11th grade and I didn't and I held it until now.
1: (laughs) Yeah. That's what it felt like.
0: I love when... This is not about trauma. I love getting a facial and then I come out and I look like a Krispy Kreme donut. Like I have a glaze on my face. Um,
1: And this was one of those facials. So it was only serums and stuff. It was none of the like extractions or anything. So it was just so gentle and comforting. And all the beds they had you lay in for the whole day were heated.
0: Yeah. Oh, yeah.
1: I had never had that. It was unbelievable.
0: At every opportunity where people are like, let's go to a bar or a club or a sports game. Every time people are like, let's spend money doing this, I go, or we could go to the spa. And sometimes my friends take me up on it.
1: So might I suggest that as the new plan? I have tried already. And my friends, the problem is we mostly hang out at people's homes Mm -hmm. and do things that don't cost money Mm -hmm. so then the pitch for hey let's go out and spend money is a little bit harder to sell because it's not like we're going out and spending money on things that most people don't want to do like i don't have a lot of friends going to sports games tracy
0: i will go to the spa with you and and i'll buy you avocado toast
1: You just heard Rowan say the words, I love you. That's what you just heard. (laughs) I do love you. (laughs) And I love you. And I love all of our listeners. And thank you all so much for joining us. And remember that stories grow with the telling. So if you like what we do, tell a friend. Or tell a foe. And we'll see you soon. Okay?
0: Thank you so much for joining us for the Willing and Fable podcast. This episode was written and produced by Tracy Harrison and Rowan Hall. That's me. Our logo is by Jamie Harrison, and our music is by Taylor Ashe. If you ever want to watch or read what we're reading, head over to willingandfable.com for our show notes and custom merch. Or find us at Willing and Fable on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok to join the discussion. We hope you'll rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast using your favorite listening source. And check out William and Fable on Patreon, where we have more than a few surprises for you, including custom artwork, stories, and access to our secret Discord channel. And of course, join us next time for another round of original retellings and in-depth research on the history, mystery, and mythology that makes the world so fascinating.